the father of faith. The man named Abram, whose name will be changed to Abraham when we get to chapter 17. In chapter 16, we see what happens when we lose patience and decide God needs our help to figure out a way to make his promises come to pass in a more timely fashion. Chapter 16 is the part of Abram's story where his wife Sarah makes what seems to be a logical solution to their problem of infertility. It has been 10 years since Abram went to her and said, we're leaving Ur the Chaldees, leave your family, I'm leaving mine. We're going to a place that God said he would show me, Yahweh said he would show me, and that he would make us a he would make me the father of a, of a multitude of people and a great nation, and he would give us a land. Ten years have gone by, and that promise has not come true. And waiting got to them. We talked about waiting last Sunday. It's not in my notes, but, you know, last Sunday I told you that on Friday night before we'd gone to a restaurant, they told us we'd have to wait 30 minutes, so we went to another one and we're eating within 20 minutes. We went to that same restaurant last Sunday afternoon after this service. Now, I don't know if the Lord was part of this, but they told us you'll have 15-minute wait. It was almost 40 minutes before we got our table. It was an hour before we got our food. And I just preached on waiting. So Sarah suggested that they do what other people do in those days. Sarah said, Abram, what we need to do, you need to take my servant girl from Egypt, Hagar, take her as your second wife so I can have a child through her. Now I shared with you some historical documents or quotes from historical documents that, that indicated that there was even laws to tell how to do this. Remember the story of Jacob and his two wives, and he did the same thing with their servant girls. Because of their lack of medical knowledge that we have today, where you can end up artificial insemination and all of that, this became a wife. It became a concubine. Abram took Hagar as a wife, at least in a physical sense. We don't see that it ever refers to as his wife but she got pregnant. She developed an attitude towards Sarai to the point that Sarai went off on Abraham, on Abram, this is your fault. What is, and that I'm enduring this abuse from this younger Egyptian slave girl who's now carrying your child. And she went to Abram and she said, may the Lord judge between you and me. Now, perhaps a lady could tell us exactly what that means. We'll pick up the story in verse 6. Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, 
where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And my first thought was, oh, the tangled web we weave. Sarai talks Abram into the surrogate mother plan, and when the surrogate mother begins to mistreat her, Sarai blames her husband and begins to mistreat Hagar. Instead of calling a family meeting and building an altar and bringing a sacrifice and repenting before the Lord for creating this mess, Abram says to Sarai, a typical man takes the path of least resistance, Sarai, do with her as you please. And Sarai goes to work getting vengeance for the perceived injury that she has received from Hagar. Even though it was Sarai who started this whole fiasco. Hagar's solution was to run away from her problem. Hagar's solution was to run away from her problem. That's pretty much human nature, isn't it? Adam and Eve, Eve eats the fruit. It's good, Adam, take a taste. And he takes a taste, and suddenly they know they're naked, vulnerable, and they've broken God's command. What was the first thing they did when they heard God coming? They tried to run and hide. Linus and Charlie Brown were chatting. Linus said, I don't like to face problems head on. I think the best way to solve problems is avoid them. In fact, says Linus, this is a distinct philosophy of mine. No problem is so big or so complicated that, I can't, that it can't be run away from. And that was Linus's philosophy. I wonder where Schultz got that idea when he wrote that strip the observation of humanity. We don't like our job, what do we do? Marriage gets difficult, what do we do? When your parents were too strict when you were a kid, what did you do? 
I won't ask how many when you were little tiny said I'm running away from home and got as far as the end of the driveway and decided you're hungry. <laughs> Came back. Running away. If we do not see the possibility of a solution that pleases us and makes us comfortable, we all have a tendency to try to run away. But before we get too hard on her, let's try to put ourselves in her shoes or her sandals if she got to wear any as a slave. She was an Egyptian and a servant girl. There's a good chance that she had been an orphan and got put into the market where people could purchase a servant. Now, that servanthood wasn't quite the same as the slavery that we have seen at different times in, even in this culture. But it is a realm of the possibility that she was an orphan child, been purchased. So she already has one strike against her in the issue. She's a servant. She really has no right. She is expected to do exactly what her mistress commands her to do. Was she a willing partner in this love triangle that produced this baby? Probably not. I mean, he's 85 years old. Being pregnant opened up a whole new plethora of emotions for this young woman. And every mother said, Things happen to you physically and hormonally that made you an interesting creature to live with. <laughs> so on top of being pregnant with a child she didn't really ask for, now she's being persecuted by the person who suggested that she become pregnant. Hagar seems to have been trapped in a system where she felt she's invisible. She felt like, I have no rights, I have no dignity, I have no freedom of choice. And Hagar comes to this place where she said, I've had enough. Abraham had been intimate with her, she's pregnant by him, yet he still refers to her as Sarai's servant. And that is the way Sarai refers to her, my servant. So to get out of this trap of invisibility, she decides to run away. There may have been a voice in her head that said, they won't miss you anyway. I'm just a possession, and they have an abundance of possessions because they were rich. She was hurting. She was tired. She was suffering unjustly. And just like you and me, she wanted to do whatever it took to get away from the suffering, from the chaos, from the pain. So she makes the decision to run away. Where does she run to? Hagar decided to go home to Egypt. To go home to Egypt. In verse 7, we read that the Lord, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. 
And if you look at a map of those ancient times, most scholars believe that Shur, the wilderness of Shur, was right at the border of going back into Egypt. My understanding, it was a well-traveled roadway, not like we know, not a freeway, but it was a well-traveled path that went through the hills, through the, the mountains there that many people used. She's almost back to Egypt when the Lord, the angel of the Lord, found her by a spring of water. Now, I realize this story precedes Israel being delivered from Egypt. But all through Scripture, Egypt is a place of that of slavery, a place of bondage. And it becomes a picture. We were delivered from Egypt when Jesus Christ saved us from our sins, the land of, of slavery to sin. We acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. He brought us into new life. He brought us into the place where we can possess the promises of God. That's what Canaan is about. Canaan doesn't represent heaven. The promised land is not heaven. The promised land is the life with Christ in me and obtaining what Christ has got for me. So to go back to Egypt, she's going to go back to where she come from. She's now been living in a household where Abram and Sarah have begun to worship Yahweh. For 10 years, they have been worshiping Yahweh. They have built altars to Yahweh. They have worshiped Yahweh. They didn't worship Ra, the sun god. They didn't worship the rain god. They didn't worship the, the god of the river. They worshiped the living God, creator of heaven and earth. But when the way got really tough, she wants to return to Egypt. If you've been reading with us through the Bible reading program, Stand on the Word, we've been going through the book of Exodus, and we'll finish it this week. I didn't count them. And if, when we read in Numbers, we're going to read a whole bunch more, where the Israelites have been delivered from Egypt, the land of bondage. And every time things got really rough, what did they say to Moses? Why did you bring us out here to die? We had everything we needed in Egypt. We had all this stuff. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back. At least we'll die with our bellies full, eating meat and potatoes instead of what is this? Manna, that's what it means. What is this? Hagar was hurt by people who worshipped Yahweh. And the solution to her hurt was to run away. How many times have I heard that in our world today? If that's the way a Christian acts, I want no part of it. I wonder how many hundreds of people are in this valley that we live in and the hills on either side 
who are not in a place of worship this morning because someone who is endeavoring to follow Christ blew it. And by the way, we all blow it from time to time. There are no perfect Christians yet. No perfect Christians yet. But they were wounded, and the enemy came and whispered in their ear, never go back to church again. Never go back to those people. Why don't you just go back to a life where you didn't acknowledge Jesus and the people in the bar treated you right? Suffering is part of life. We all suffer. And that can be for a number of reasons. And sometimes we suffer because we made some stupid mistakes or stupid decisions. Anybody ever made a stupid decision? I got three people who confess. Yes, you made. The rest of you are also smart. You never made a wrong decision. Come and give us counseling. But you know what? A lot of times we suffer simply because of the fact we live in a broken world and evil is perpetuated all around us. And it seems to be in an ever-increasing intensity in the day we live in. Now, listen closely. I'm not saying we should go looking for suffering. I'm not telling you to do something that will cause you to suffer. But when suffering comes, instead of running away and going back somewhere else, understand God is going to use this suffering for something good in your life, something good in my life, if I will simply submit myself to him in the midst of it. You say, really? First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad. And I put this in bold and italics on the screen. When his glory is revealed, God comes and reveals himself in the midst of the suffering. Hagar's running was interrupted by a divine encounter. Hagar's running was interrupted by a divine encounter. The angel of the Lord found her. Now, I think this is the first time that that phrase, the angel of the Lord, is in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. As we read the context and the conversation that takes place between his angel and Hagar, it's easy to see how many theologians believe this. In this context, the angel of the Lord is a theophany. The angel of the Lord is a theophany. What is a theophany? 
It's the manifestation of the presence of God where he takes on the form of a man and shows up pre-incarnation. It's not that he's incarnated. It's just that he wraps himself up in a form of a man. A couple chapters later, the Lord and a couple more angels are going to visit Abram in the form of a man. In the book of Daniel, you remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fiery furnace? Did we not cast three in there? I see four. Four men walking. And one of them looks like the Son of God. So it would appear from this conversation and what she says to him and the fact the angel does not change her. You see, angel doesn't always mean that created being. Angel is a word that in the Hebrew, messenger. And so God comes. The angel of the Lord found her. And if it was really a theophany, like most theologians and things, we could say it this way. Jesus found her. Jesus found her. That's what Jesus does. You did not find Jesus. He found you. The Bible says no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And the Bible tells us we only come when the Spirit draws us. Jesus found her. I'm reminded of the stories that Jesus told in, in the Gospel of Luke. The story of a shepherd who had 99 sheep. Or he had 100 sheep. And he counted them when they came into the fold. 99, one's missing. He leaves the 99 in the fold, and he goes and searches. How long did he search? Till he found the lost sheep. Then what did he do? He threw a party. The same chapter, Jesus goes on to say, a certain lady had 10 coins, and she lost one of them. Very significant, important coins. People in the Jewish culture would have understood the importance of that, of that story. She searches her house until she finds the coin. And then she threw a party. Aren't you glad that Jesus seeks us when we stray? It's not like he doesn't know where we are. He just manifests himself to show us, I know where you're at. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. When we get to chapter 21, I'm going to come back to the spring of water and the well and all the, but but that's later. We could run through Scripture and see that Jesus promises to be a spring of water welling up from within our soul. He found her in the wilderness. In the wilderness. How many of you could say, Jesus found me when I was at the bottom? I had come to the end of myself. I didn't know where to go. And suddenly, he showed himself to me. She's in the wilderness. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Verse 8 said, 
Hagar, servant of Sarai. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai. I try to put myself in the story. In my mind, I see her almost exhausted, frazzled, sitting under whatever kind of shrub might have been growing next to the spring. She's scared. She doesn't know what the future holds. Where is she really going to go when she gets back to Egypt? Is she going to the auction block again? Will anybody hire a pregnant woman to be their servant? Jesus found her and called her by name. He found her and called her by name. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai. Probably the most important words to your soul, to your heart, is your name. She's sitting there all by herself. And the stranger says, Hagar, servant of Sarai. Now, I know I said that's the most important. Most of you would say, no, 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 that's really not true. That's not the most important. But it really is. Listen to this story, true story. A man named Danny Cross. He said, my parents divorced when I was four. Between the ages of 5 and 15, I saw my father a total of eight times, usually for five days. I saw him once when I was 27, and a final time when I was 29. As much as I wanted and needed a father, he chose not to be there. I cried like a baby at his funeral in 1994, not because I would miss him so much, but because of the finality that I would never have a father was too overwhelming. Funny thing about my biological father, he never once came to see me. I always had to go see him. And he rarely said my name. The only time I can remember him saying my name was when he was manipulating me to see if I had come with any spending money for my visit. I would have given him all my spending money just to hear him call my name, just to hear him say, I love you. He goes on to say, when I was nine years old, my mother remarried. To this day, I don't really understand why they married. They had little in common. But I lived in his house, and I called him daddy. He called me boy or Helen's boy. That's my mom. I had a dog named Lad that he called Son. He would sit with my dog on the porch, put his arm around Lad's neck, and talk to him about his day and call him Son. He never called me Son. From 1968, when I first met him, until 1992, when he passed away, he never once, not even once, said my name. 
As a child, I would have given anything to hear him call my name. By the time I was a teen, I was so disillusioned with our relationship, I just avoided him, and he avoided me. Sometimes we would go six months living in the same house without seeing each other. To this very day, I have a difficult time maintaining close friendships with men because there were no men there for me when I was young. I suppose I carried that expectation in my adult life. I struggled daily with feelings of inadequacy about my own abilities as a father. I have known this whole lack of a father thing was a sore point in my life, but I never had it become so, as real and focused as become in the last year or so. End of quote. And the angel of the Lord said, Hagar, servant of Sarai. And there's the Lord himself covered in some kind of man's body. As far as she knows, it's just a complete stranger who's shown to, up to interrupt her pity party and disturb her rest from her walk. He spoke to her by name. Not only did he speak to her by name, Jesus knew her name and he knew her story. Hagar, servant of Sarai. He knew her story. And he asked her, where are you going? And he obviously already knew all of that, but he wanted her to verbalize where she was, where she was going. She's miles away from Abram and Sarai, almost to the border of Egypt. And the messenger whom heaven calls her by name and occupation. Hagar would not have been on the list of any party invitations. She would not have been listed in who's who. She was a servant. To this point in time, she had not been important to any person, an important person, anyone that we know about. An ordinary young woman living in the midst of a personal nightmare, running away from the pain and suffering in Abram and Sarah's employ. But before she gets all the way back to Egypt, the land of pagan gods, Jesus called her name. Fill in the next blanks on the notes is what I wrote in my notes right here. Jesus knows my name and my story. I'm not talking about he knows mine, but I want you to, he knows your story. He knows your name. We've all had moments in our life when we have wondered, does anyone really care about me. Would anybody miss me if I were gone? Does God care? Am I on this journey all alone? Because it sure feels like it. We, we all have those moments in life, and if you never have one yet, it'll come, where you will sing the same song that David wrote. Oh, that I had the wings of a dove 
to fly away from all of this trouble. I could fly away to a different place. Jesus knows your name, and he knows your story, and he knows where you are today. Jesus heard her prayer. Jesus heard her prayer. Verse 11 said, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. You will call him Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Ishmael means God has heard. God has heard. So after this boy is born and she gives him the name that God told her to give, and she's singing lullabies to this baby cradle in her arms, next to her breast, Ishmael, Ishmael. She hears herself saying, God has heard. God has heard. Even when he gets a little older and he displays the temperament that God said he has as a wild donkey, and she yells at him, Ishmael, stop that. She still hears herself saying, God heard. God has heard. God has heard. I've had some significant dark moments in my life, and I'm not going to go into those stories, but I'm going to tell you, those moments when quitting seemed the most logical thing to do, God spoke. God spoke through somebody to let me know, I know where you're at. I know your story. Don't go that direction. You need to go back where you came from. He knows my name. He knows where I'm at. He hears my prayer. Psalms 139. Verse 1, O Lord, you've searched me. You've known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before words on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. Lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. He goes on to say, you knew me when I was knitted together in my mother's womb. Every day of my life is written in your book. 
God knows your name. God knows where you're at today. Physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And he hears your prayer. He hears your prayer. God not only knows your name, he keeps your name ever before him. God's speaking to the people from Judah and Jerusalem who are going to be exiled into Babylon because of their idolatry. God says this, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. God has your name in the palm of his hand. I want to skip down to Hagar's response to everything that Jesus revealed to her about her future. Son would be born. He too would become a multitude of people that seems to be innumerable. Verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. You saw me, I've seen you. You're a God of seeing. There was such a profound moment that she gives God a name. Most of the time in the Scripture, God reveals a name of himself. But here, this woman, an Egyptian woman, she gives God a name. Hagar gave the Lord the name El-Rohi. El-Rohi. If you were to look at the Hebrew Scriptures, you're a God of seeing, you would see those words. You are El-Rohi, the God who sees. I have just seen the one who sees me. Therefore, I'm going to name this place Der Lahai Roi, well of the living one who sees me. Well of the living one who sees me. I'm going to take an intermission. All day long, yesterday, a Tommy Walker song was going through my mind. I know a week ago it was an Andre Crouch song. Must be a sign of old age. But this is the message for somebody's today. I'm not going to say somebody. I, I, I think that he knows your name and he knows where you are. And he sees you and he hears your prayer. I have a
probably should sing that chorus a couple dozen times more so that it rings in your head all day long. He knows my name. He knows. Danny Cross's story. I didn't finish it. He wrote, a while back, a friend introduced me to a song that tore my heart open and made me face the pain I'd never faced before. And yet when the song broke me and the tears flowed, I sobbed out loud, wanting to cry out, please tell me you love me, Daddy. Suddenly, I felt the Holy Spirit wrap his arms around me. I began to sing and weep. But this time, with the joy of realizing I have a father, he calls me his own. He'll never leave me no matter where I go. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and he hears me when I call. Someone who wanted to remain anonymous shared a story with Tommy Walker who wrote that song. This anonymous person wrote, I'll never forget when the lights finally came on in Cindy's eyes. She had lived under a cloud of darkness and lingering sadness hung about her. She hated her name. Every time she heard Cindy, it registered in her as sinning. She felt dirty and shamed at the very mention of her name. Tragically, Cindy had been sexually assaulted by her father when she was just a child. The pain of that had been buried inside of her for more than 30 years. One day, as she was able to bring all her pain to the light of God's cleansing love, she heard the Heavenly Father speaking her name. She wanted to tell God to stop saying that awful name, but he kept speaking it with such affection and warmth and love. It was as though God was singing her name, like a gentle father would sing to his baby girl as he rocked her in his arms. Suddenly, it was revealed to her that God had chosen her name before the foundation of the world. Her name was so sweet to him. It was a name that was like the sweetest song because it was the name he had chosen for the one he loved beyond words. God began an incredible healing and transformation in Cindy's life. The dark shadows were replaced by a bright glow. Her testimony before the church spoke of how God had turned the ashes of her life into gold. She felt that everything about her and who she'd been taken away and ruined. But God, and all of that through his love, turned her life into something she could celebrate and enjoy. He knows your name. He knows each thought you think. He sees each tear that falls. And he hears you when you call.
Jesus told Hagar to go back and submit herself to Sarai. Go back and submit yourself to Sarai. Click it one more time. There you go. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. God said there's going to be a certain level of the promise to Abraham that will come to Ishmael. You're going to have a multitude, but it is contingent upon this. Submission. Submission. Before Hagar could submit to Sarai, who did she have to submit to? She had to submit to God. Go back. Here's the thing. Hagar's return meant that Sarai had to submit herself to God. Hagar comes back. I was going to flee. I was going to go home to where. But God showed up. The angel of the Lord showed up himself. And he told me I need to come back here and submit myself to you. We're not told how the conversation went, but for the next several years, until Isaac was born, about 13 years later that everything blew up again. But at that moment, not only did Sarai have to submit to God, Abram had to submit to God. Before he had been somewhat passive, he allowed Sarai to talk him into the crazy scheme. When it went south, he did not advocate for, for Hagar. But notice what happened when the baby was born. Verse 15 said, And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Why did he call him Ishmael? Because God said to Hagar, You're going to call him Ishmael. God has heard. They got themselves into the mess by not submitting themselves to the Lord. But they learned a lesson. They learned a lesson. The good news is this. God forgives. And there's the possibility of new beginnings. New beginnings. One of the writers, and I forgot to write down his name and the exact thing, but one of the guys that I read this week, said our Christian life is a series of new beginnings because we all stumble and fall. But we get up again because He knows our name. He knows our story. He knows where we're at. And He has a promise for us. God sees you. I hope that you hear it. He's El Roi. God sees you. He sees your pain. He sees the frustration that you're living with. He sees your broken heart. 
God sees what you're trying to hide from all of us. He sees you. Not only is it God who sees, but He's the God who hears. And not only does He hear, but He's the only God who can do something about it. I'm so thankful for that. Four application points, and we're done. Number one, refuse to be a victim. Refuse to be a victim. Hagar ran away. I'm a victim. God said, go back. You're not a victim. There's something that's going to be worked out. Number two, lean into the one who sees you. Lean into El-Rohi, the God who sees you. Number three, be patient in faith. Be patient in faith. God hears you. And God is at work answering the cry of your heart. Number four, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. I want you to stand. We're going to sing the power of your love.